Welcome to the Friday subscribers-only edition of The Hub Dialogues, the podcast of The Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday-only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths, about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights, and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Hey, Stuart. Hey, Sean. Great to be in conversation with you again this Friday. Hey, great to be here. Hey, Rudyard. Hey, Stuart. Well, this is our weekly Friday roundup at the Hub, a kind of opportunity for us to go deep into some of the key issues and ideas in the news, hopefully leave you with some new analysis and insights. Um, As always on this pod, what we want to try to do is think for you, not entirely on behalf of you, but at least do a little work for you to to tease through this conservative uh, leadership race, because I think it's something uh, we're certainly following carefully at the Hub. And Stuart, you kicked off the Friday edition of Per Diem uh, this week with our first weekly roundup. So each week, as I understand it, Stuart, on Fridays, you're going to give us a kind of digest of the campaign that was. So again, an opportunity just to kind of check in and get a quick refresher on the race. What was your takeaway in that dispatch, the report you wrote today, uh, what should our listeners kind of withdraw from the last seven days to understand maybe where this campaign is headed, or at least what some of the key dynamics are right now? Yeah, I think probably the most interesting thing this week was that we got a a fairly interesting poll from the Angus Reid Institute. And uh, this you know, I will always caution people that polls on this kind of stuff are have limited value because obviously this is an election by conservative members. And um, one of the ways Angus Reid Institute tried to break that down was by saying, who did you vote for last time? So that's kind of a rough proxy of uh, you voted conservative last time. Maybe your opinion will be relevant here. So um, intra- I think probably not totally surprisingly, Pierre Polyev leads with conservative um, members by a lot. Um, but I think hold on, that- Stuart, Stuart, a lot like quantify that it was a lot, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so um, if you're Jean Charest, I don't think you're surprised by you know Pierre Polyev really roasting you among conservative members because so, so, so what so what were those numbers? So Pierre Polyev had 54 percent support compared to Jean Charest's 15%. And uh, I would have guessed it would be maybe not that high, but it would be a fairly large spread between those two guys. Um, And then, you know, something that I think some conservatives will be looking to is sort of general, you know, electability. How much does the general public like this guy? Um, And I think one of the arguments that Jean Charest has been making with his built to win campaign is that he will appeal to the sort of people who haven't conventionally voted conservative while the liberals have been winning elections. And, um, you know, surprisingly, Pierre Polyev also beat Jean Charest in sort of the general, you know, everyone category by 25 
to 20. Um, so um, the headline that I saw at CBC um, was about how Sheree seems to have the edge in Ontario. Um, they dug deep for that uh, little tidbit. Uh, it's a short um, Ontario, it's, you know, 46 of potential conservative voters to 41 to Polyev. Um, but that might be relevant to some voters who feel like maybe the GTA or the, the 905 area is where they've been suffering. So um, that poll, um, it's useful. I don't think it tells you everything you need to know about the race, but I think it sort of sets a baseline for us. Thanks, uh, Stuart. Um, Sean, you had a piece this week in the Hub, um, you know, about, uh, about Polyev and the campaign, about a a potential here for a different kind of economic agenda uh, that he could put forward that might, in your view, have some traction that's broader beyond the Conservative Party itself. Could you unpack that for us? Uh, sure, of course. Um, you know, a key message, a key narrative from the Polyev campaign thus far has been the idea that so-called gatekeepers are standing in the way of increasing supply of homes, increasing supply in our manufacturing sector, increasing supply in oil and gas, increasing supply when it comes to professional accreditation, and that this supply barrier um, imposed by regulators and in, you know self-interested professional bodies and so on um, ought to be the target of, uh, of the government in terms of um, really un unleashing um, the economy. And I, I think it works on a couple of levels, uh, Rudyard and Stewart. First of all, it's a, a, a diagnosis of the uh, rising inflation that we're seeing in our economy um, with too few dollars chasing too many, uh, pardon me, too few goods being chased by too many dollars. Um, and, and secondly, I think it speaks to just a, a general economic malaise that people are feeling, uh, you know, certainly um, caused in part by the pandemic. But to be honest, even before then, um, this secular stagnation is just kind of weighed on uh, advanced economies, in, including Canada's. And so Pierre has this, um, this an, a message of abundance and prosperity. And I think that is um, gonna gonna resonate certainly with conservative voters and as you say Rudyard um, possibly with a, a broader share of the population I think that's at least partly reflected in some of the polling data mm -hmm. um, that, Rud that that Stuart mentioned yeah I always think it's interesting you know if you add up the Canadian economy you think the big percentage uh, of GDP that is government municipal provincial provincial federal then add the near state to that okay hospitals the school systems universities then add the whole swaths of the economy that are effectively kind of i don't know well orphans of the state so telecommunications banking you know heavily regulated heavily controlled often duopolies and oligopolies then you've got a whole bunch of agriculture supply side similarly controlled i mean wow you look in canada what's left that sliver where actual free market forces are brought to bear to generate productivity and you hope prosperity it's a pretty small slice Stuart, to come back to you i mean do you feel like the sheree campaign has a an equivalent of gatekeepers i mean there's this slogan built to win i think we get that but is there a philosophy yet behind the sheree campaign like is there a there there as dorothy sayers would ask yeah i so it it's the fiscal conservatism thing is interesting because that's been kind of how he's been selling himself as a conservative is he will balance the budget and i you know my question about that is always 
first of all, are we in that world where that's something that's on the minds of everyday voters is they're worried about the public finances? Um, you know, we could be getting there. I, like, I think that's probably something. Yeah, um, higher interest that, rates are going to lead to a lot higher debt servicing costs. Yeah, I, I think that builds up over time. Um, but I've always wondered about this idea of fiscal conservatism, which is, you know, if you think about um, how you might balance a budget, I think that's something that someone with a conservative temperament does because they don't want to be in debt, um, which makes sense. Um, but is if you balance a budget by, say, raising taxes, um, does that count as fiscal conservatism? Because that's probably expanding the size of government. Which part of conservatism are you expressing with your fiscal values? Um, and I think maybe if you look at the Harper years, where the idea was to lower the tax burden, to balance the budget because they didn't want government to be too big, um, generally increasing, you know, independent individual freedom for Canadians. That's an expression of conservatism. Fiscal conservatism itself could be one of those things or it could not be. Um, so it's kind of, it's more of uh, an accounting thing than anything else. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if that'll resonate. I also think that if you look at Polyev, who's a really good communicator, he's grabbed this gatekeepers thing. Nobody likes a gatekeeper. Nobody likes somebody standing in their way. Um, and it's a really evocative image. And there's a lot of people who feel like somebody is standing in their way. And I don't think anything like that has come from Sheree. It could be that he's talking to a lot of people who are just so tired of liberal governments and now liberal governments that are working with the NDP um, that they just want somebody who will beat Trudeau. That might actually resonate. I'm not sure if we're at that point yet, or I'm not sure if people look at Polyev and say, that guy can't win. We need Sheree to win. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think that's probably the thing he's battling right now. Well, let me take that up because I, I think there are, are two issues here with the um, built to win narrative. The first, uh, as you alluded, Rudyard, it doesn't have a kind of normative appeal. It's a, it's, it's a kind of a, a, a cynical appeal about electability. Um, but it seems to me that conservative voters, conservative members um, want to hear a kind of more normative uh, values-based uh, um, narrative and vision for the party and the country. Um, you know, we've seen over the past two years where the energy is uh, in, in the party and a, a kind of a, a, a pragmatic appeal about electability, it just seems to me, doesn't scratch that itch. The second thing I'd say is if that's going to be your pitch, then you need to be running a sophisticated, well-organized professional campaign. Um, if your whole argument is that you can run the most effective general election campaign of all of the prospective leadership candidates, then presumably the way you show that is run the most effective campaign in the leadership. And I think it's fair to say that thus far, um, whether it was the bungled launch with the weird video that we talked about on a previous episode, or just the kind of general lack of energy at Trey's events relative to the Polyev ones, it, it seems to me that you know even if you thought electability was going to be a persuasive message, it, it, the way it's being expressed in the Trey operations um, isn't aligned. And so I, I, I think basically in a nutshell, Sheree, before this leadership is over, is going to have to match gatekeepers with, with a, an alternative values-based message um, if he's going to have any chance of winning mm -hmm. this leadership race. Stuart, let me come back to you and talk about the other big news of the week and how it affects this race and ultimately this party's choice of uh, the next leader. We have now, in a sense, uh, 
a ribbon trough Stalin pact. I don't know that's so politically incorrect, but I'm going to say it anyway. A pact here between Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau to um, to basically uh, postpone any uh, likely defeat of the government until 2025. I mean, this is an eternity in politics. It may not last that long. There's all kinds of things coming down the pipe that potentially could dis- derail the partnership. But but doesn't this, Stuart, kind of change the complexion of both the Conservative Party race now and what comes next? Because in a sense, you're going to elect a leader that may have two, three years uh, kind of at the party helm before they get tested at the polls, which would certainly be a new dynamic. Because usually, Stuart, isn't it, you know, you have that leadership election and then sure enough, you know, six to 12 months, you're into a general election campaign. Yeah, I, I think that is it's massive because you know something I hadn't quite cottoned on to, but I, uh, Tom Mulcair actually wrote it in his column is that Jean Charest won't have a seat if he wins the leadership, so he is going to be struggling to get airtime um, if he wins the Conservative leadership because he won't be in the House of Commons. Um, and I remember, if you guys remember back when Jagmeet Singh won the NDP leadership, he didn't have a seat either, and there was this weird period where if you were in Ottawa. You would just see Jagmeet walking around like he looked lost, like there was he just had nothing to do all day. And it was kind of just people would joke about it all the time that, you know, you'd see Jagmeet out there on a skateboard or whatever. Um, it, it is a very hard thing for an opposition leader when you don't have a seat. And if there's no by-election that you want to be a part of that comes up in that time, there's not a whole lot you can do. Um, and that could be a long time. And I, I think that is something if you're a conservative voter, you might be thinking about. I think it's something if you're Jean Charest, you're thinking. That's, that's not what I was hoping for out of this. Like, you know, you would expect a minority government to last a year and a half to two years. Um, that means he gets, you know, six months to 12 months um, to ramp up. Um, so that's a different ball of wax for them. Um, I would also say that if you are Pierre Polyev, uh, this might work into what you're already saying. Um, he'll be in the house. He'll probably be able to tie this to his message that he's already touting. Um, so... If you're Polyev, I think you probably take advantage of that time. He's a good communicator. I, I think that's probably a win for him, whereas it might be a loss for Sheree. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, who knows? I mean, we don't even know if this deal will last till the end. There could be some very cynical maneuvering here where both parties expect that the agreement won't last to 2025. Okay, sure. Just before we go to break, let's get your take on this. I mean, not to play two, three-dimensional chess here, but it also put- creates the potential for the liberals, obviously, to switch out a leader before the next general election, because there's so much runway here. So does that kind of bleed back on people's calculations about this, this current conservative leadership that you could be going up against a Christopher Freeland, a Mark Carney? Who knows? Maybe it's not Justin Trudeau. Maybe he's not the opponent that the party needs to position itself now to go against. I think your instinct is right that that uh, this agreement increases the probability um, that the next conservative leader is running against a, a different leader of the Liberal Party. And that creates, as you say, a degree of uncertainty and, and different dynamics. The one thing I think we can count on, though, is that uh, whenever the next election occurs, the Conservatives will be prosecuting a case against um, extraordinary levels of spending deficits and just a general expansion of government. Those were the government's predispositions before it signed an agreement with the left-wing NDP. Um, And so I I think we're on the cusp of 
pretty massive um, spending promises um, uh, under this new agreement. And I, I think that it, it, I think Justin Trudeau and, uh, and the Liberal Party uh, is misreading the Canadian population. We spoke uh, recently uh, to Daryl Brooker, who, who tells me, uh, Rudyard and Stewart, that while Canadians were in support of, of the temporary expansion of government in COVID, um, that doesn't translate to um, more positive feelings about the role of government in, in the economy and society outside of this extraordinary emergency. So uh, I, I think this is possibly shaping up, particularly if Polyev wins, to um, what amounts to a, a major kind of clash of, of ideologies and ideas between the left and the right in the next election campaign about the proper role and size uh, and scope of, of government. And, you know, I think that bodes well. It's interesting. It's fascinating. And certainly something we're going to be thinking and, and writing and talking about at the Hub. Well, great. When we come back from this break, we're going to talk about inflation and uh, what this could mean for Canada going forward. How are we going to respond to this in terms of public policy? How is it going to affect our politics? Because while I agree with you, Sean, there could be a big impetus here to expand government. There's this nasty thing called the international bond market. And I believe it was James Carville who said to Bill Clinton when interest rates skyrocketed at the beginning of the first Clinton administration, you know, I don't want to come back as the Pope or president. I want to come back as the bond market because you can intimidate everyone. So we're going to talk about that right after this break. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button, donate, We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Okay, Hub listeners, you are back with our Friday Roundup. This is our weekly podcast, digging into the big issues and ideas in the news moving the public conversation, hopefully leaving you with some new analysis and insights. Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, joins me along with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large. Okay, guys, let's uh, let's talk economics and policy a bit because it's an issue, a beat that we like to cover at the Hub. Um, a month into this war, we're now seeing uh, the reverberations, the economic reverberations across the world, soaring energy prices, commodity prices from wheat to nickel to you name it. Uh, this is all, uh, in a sense, push cost inflation that's going to come roaring through uh, the economy into the stickier parts of the CPI, the consumer price index, whether that's rents, wages. And what are we seeing? Well, maybe not so much in Canada, but the United States, a U.S. Federal Reserve, the world's largest central bank, announcing aggressive multi rate hikes this year, possibly as many as seven, pushing up uh, the prime rate, uh, hundreds of basis points, possibly over the next 12 months. So let me come to you first, Sean. You know, it seems right now that we have a kind of somewhat passive attitude here in Canada towards these really substantial 
almost 1970s kind of inflationary shocks. And I would say the risk, Sean, of stagflation, a repeat of that horrible 1970s scenario of slowing to contracting economic growth while commodity and other prices roar ahead. What's your take? Are we overly complacent right now in Canada or am I just overly worried? <laughs> no, you've been beating the drum on this for some time. Um, when so many other voices were telling us that these were merely transitory um, effects of the of the pandemic, that there was nothing to worry about. I mean, think about it. Tiff Macklin was was telling a parliamentary committee, um, you know, a month ago um, that there was nothing to see here. And now in recent days, we hear from the deputy bank governor um, a first admission um, that there is a, a kind of structural issue here um, that's going to necessitate um, a, a pretty uh, aggressive um, anti-inflation monetary policy to avoid precisely what you're talking about. So that's a long way of saying, you know, I, I think there's a lot of voices in business, in the mainstream media and policy circles um, that ought to have egg on their face, um, that they told us for a long time um, that, uh, that the voices who were raising these questions were alarmist and, and, and all of the rest. And I, I hope that they're held to account. Um, because we know um, that when you're playing with inflation, you're playing with fire. Um, and I, I think there is a real risk that we'll finally now see um, the type of recognition that we should have seen some time ago. Um, but it's going to impose real costs on the economy to, to get this back under control. So um, that's a long way of saying, Rudyard, you were right. <laughs> I love it. Stuart, we saw this week, you know, the first, in a sense, major policy response to this inflation shock from the government of Quebec, um, a, an idea that I would characterize as as dumb as a bag of hammers, but I'll let you come up with your own metaphor um, for it. Uh, it's $500 for every tax filer, I believe, at $100,000 or less that Quebecers can use to go out and fill up their Ford F-150s with, you know, premium ethanol blend. What do you think about this? Is that a sign of what's to come? Is that a level of sophistication that we can expect in terms of the policy response? And just generally, you're, you're our guy in Ottawa. Am I right that this whole inflationary shock hasn't really translated yet through to the political conversation? I mean, we talked this week about a you know, uh, uh, an agreement between the NDP and the Liberals to engage in a significant expansion of government. Um, you know, that's stimulative to an extent. That is a fiscal spend that has an effect, as Sean said earlier in the program, of creating, you know, more dollars chasing fewer goods and services. I don't know. I'd love your take of what the mood is in Ottawa when it comes to inflation. Yeah, I, so I have the benefit of living in suburban Ottawa in a... Um, little community where you're not downtown next to the House of Commons and you can be outside of the bubble a little bit. And my first reaction to this deal was, this is just not, this is the opposite of the mood of what's happening in the rest of Canada. And, you know, I look at spending over $100 to fill up my minivan to haul around my kids. Um, that's the first time that's happened. I just checked my mortgage payment um, because I was reaping the benefits of a variable rate mortgage for a couple of years. And it's just gone up for the first time. Um, and you know, if you look at that and then, you know, I was talking to some people who were mentioning, this is a story that's kind of gone underreported in my mind, cause I'm a big fan of potato chips, but the Frito-Lay Loblaw fight, which has resulted in Loblaws not stocking a lot of the best potato chips. Um, it's, if you go into the superstore near my house, 
the shelves are bare in a lot of areas. You can't get a pack of Lay's potato chips because of this fight, which stems with inflation. Frito-Lay's wanted Loblaws to raise the price. They refused. They pulled the stock. Um, it is a strange thing. And people who I know know nothing about politics or public finance are talking about how they can't buy the good potato chips anymore. Um, and the more that these things happen, the more that they get into our lives in ways that maybe we weren't expecting and maybe ways that we were expecting, it creates a mood. And the mood may not be totally coherent in a political and policy way, but it will have an effect. And I, you know, obviously I live in a certain milieu talking to people like you guys who care a lot about, you know, inflation and the, you know, the balance sheet of the government. Um, so of course I would prefer this deal didn't happen. And I look at some of the costs that are going to happen because of it. And I think that's probably a bad thing. So I'm probably, you know, inclined to have that reaction, but, you know, talking to my neighbors, talking to people I know, it is not on track with how the rest of the country is mm -hmm. feeling. And I'm sure polling will start to tell us if that's true or not. Yeah. You know, Thanks, Sean, for mentioning it, because, you know, over the, the Hub's first year, I've written a couple pieces about the Bank of Canada, which is usually a good way to get a really low ranking story in terms of the number of a number of web hits. But I felt it important at the time because we we're engaged in this massive monetary experiment of blowing out the, the federal uh, central bank's balance sheet, stuffing it with hundreds of billions of dollars of government corporate and provincial debt. The central bank now is the single largest owner of Canadian debt. No one has more of it anywhere, but its own central bank, isn't that convenient? What that did is it suppressed rates, artificially brought borrowing costs down, caused home prices to skyrocket 40 odd percent in the last year. But more importantly, what it's done is it's, it's allowed us to arrive at this scenario now with this bloated balance sheet with rock bottom interest rates and no cushion. So my worry, and I'm not the only person, it's not like I had some terrific insight in this or other smart commentators out there like Mohammed Alarian, and you can go through a big list who are saying to all the central banks, look guys, the world sometimes unfolds in ways that you don't want it to. Exogenous shocks happen. And guess what? We got an exogenous shock. We have the first major war in Europe in half a century. So we have the exogenous shock and guess what? We didn't do what we needed to do when we could have done what we needed to have done, which was to slowly bring rates up, reduce the balance sheet, maybe not engage in all the wild, you know, fiscal expenditures that politically were exceedingly, you know, convenient for the government at the time in terms of delivering checks. Maybe those things were needed in the immediate months of the pandemic. But both Canada, the United States and Europe and other democracies have shown over the last 24 to 36 months this incredible profligacy in terms of fiscal and monetary policy. And now the shock arrives. And now what are they doing, Sean and Stuart? I know I'm ranting here, but just let me finish this. They're giving away checks. They're going back to the CERB model, which, Sean, maybe you can explain to us just how profoundly bad that is as an economic idea and more importantly as a public policy response yeah it's like shoveling water into a sinking boat right um and, and as you mentioned we've seen this in quebec um just this week we saw similar announcements in parts of europe where in response to the growing public angst about inflation 
governments are responding by um, cutting these checks, um, uh, which I think you've described as uh, dumb as a, a bag of hammers. Um, but I think it, I think it does provide a, a broader insight as well uh, about the kind of political economy challenges of climate change policies. Bear with me. I know this is a, a bit of a tortured analogy, but I, I think it's a point worth making that carbon taxes and other emission, emission abatement policies are designed, of course, to raise prices precisely to induce behavioral change. Um, but what we're seeing in this case, with, rise, with prices rising, governments coming in to try to minimize those price increases on individual consumers. And it seems to me that has always been the inherent challenge with carbon taxes and, and climate policies more generally, that as soon as the intended purpose manifests itself and prices start to rise, the political pressure on governments to intervene becomes so powerful um, that it, it undoes um, the, the, the very purpose of, of the policy. And so right now we have a carbon tax um, you know, that most people probably are only noticing on the margins, but keep in mind, it's supposed to go to $170 per ton um, by the end of this decade. And, and I think if, if the Quebec uh, $500 check tells us anything, I'm not convinced that Canadian governments are going to have the stomach um, to let carbon prices get that high. So it's a long way of saying this one specific example actually has, um, I think, broader, um, provides kind of broader evidence of mm -hmm. the, the major challenge we have when it comes to carbon taxes and climate policy. But even worse, guys, you know, this $500 check, and I worry that, you know, we can see this quickly nationalized. I mean, Germany's done this, Governor Newsom in California. I mean, this is this is metastasizing big time through the public policy kind of infrastructure of the West, is that, you know, it does three, I think, really lousy things. Number one, it it doesn't allow for demand destruction, because what high prices do ultimately is they reduce demand. You want the price signal to come through. So people drive less, they change their behavior. And guess what? Oil and energy and these other prices fall. It, you're just adding to the agony. You're extending the pain by engaging in these fiscal transfers. Second, as you mentioned, Sean, you are basically, you know, creating in the public's mind an intense amount of confusion because literally months ago, all these same countries were at the COP convention in Glasgow announcing these lofty, ambitious, zero emission targets in a matter of a decade or two, no emissions, yet now they're turning around and handing you, the citizen, a check to go out and buy hydrocarbons on their dime. And the third thing I'd mention is just for those of us who kind of have an ethical consciousness, the scarcity problem isn't just in our societies, it's around the world. And the societies that will bear this inflationary shock the hardest, will have the biggest political and economic ramifications is the developing world. You are literally snatching the bread out of the mouths of people in developing countries by subsidizing our consumption uh, to supposedly blunt these economic shocks here in the West. We will be bidding against them in international markets for wheat, for canola, for lentils, you name it. We are, in a sense, exacerbating a, a global food crisis that I think is really going to rock uh, the global South uh, in the coming months. So, Stuart, let me hand it back to you just to wrap up the show. Um, 
what's what's on deck for the you know the hub in uh, next week? What are the big stories and issues and ideas that our our leader our readers can look forward to? Yeah, before I do that, let me just say how incoherent the mind of the voter is because. You guys both made very convincing cases. I would still not say no to a $500 check to help me fill up my stupid minivan. <laughs> I would be delighted to see that money. Um, so yeah, uh, aside from that- um, But they borrowed our... the money, Like they, they didn't just like, there's not some magic pot where like there's this thing called money and it's like this real thing and we earned it because the government worked for it or it invented this cool new product or service. They, they literally just, you know, in, Canada's case up until recently, they just literally went to their own central bank and said, give me money that you print out of thin air and I will give it to my voters so they like me more. That is the level of kind yeah. of self-dealing and I just think abject, dismal policy stewardship that has substantiated a lot of our policy over the last 36 months. Yeah. Theoretically, I agree with you. Um, <laughs> but Stuart's not going to turn down his Trudeau sing bucks, I guess, is the takeaway of this week's episode. Yeah, things are tough out here in the suburbs, man. I haven't had good salt and vinegar chips for a while. Uh, uh, so next week at The Hub, we'll be a little more coherent than my intellect. Um, we have Howard Anglin has just been pumping stuff out for us. Um, so we appreciate that. He's got a great piece coming on. Um, you know, we I, I think we're sort of gearing up to talk about healthcare. Um, so we're going to start covering that at the hub. Howard's got a good kind of tone setter there. Um, this is a discussion that I think will be ongoing, depending on how long the liberals can rag the puck on their agreement with the NDP on doing dental care and pharmacare and stuff like that. Um, I, and also on that note, we have a great piece from one of my own personal favorite writers, Royce Coop, on um, the difficulty that parties have. And this is an especially a problem for the conservative party where they, they fundraise a lot. They fundraise very, very, very well. But those messages don't necessarily play to the general audience. And sometimes they get caught in those worlds. And if you are the leader of the conservatives, um, sometimes you find yourself saying things in like that would probably be more appealing to your base. Um, we also will be doing that roundup on the conservative leadership race uh, every week. So that's something to every watch out Friday. for on Fridays. We'll try to catch all that for you and we'll talk about it on the podcast. Hey, thanks for lots of great stuff to uh, listen, read, watch uh, at the hub in the coming days. Sean, you know, thanks for joining us too for this weekly roundup. And again, we'll try to keep these conversations going each Friday. So we can contribute a little bit to some of the heavy lifting that we're all feel responsible for to keep up to date on current events and especially on the conservative party leadership race. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. Thanks for listening. We'll do this all again next week. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of The Hub Dialogues for subscribers only hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a hub donor. 
This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.